think we're seeing this push to really do a lot more HIV stigma reduction. The thing with that though is, is that because HIV stigma is a community issue, the community and the context of the community need to be involved in sort of those interventions. HIV care providers are on topic with IU. My name is Kenny Smith with the Media School at Indiana University Bloomington, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Christopher Owens, an assistant professor at Texas A&M University and a 2020 graduate of Indiana University's School of Public Health. Dr. Owens, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. We're excited to have you along in this conversation as well. One of the areas where you spend your time and your attention is in rural populations. You focus on issues like sexual and gender minorities in rural areas and in our topic today, HIV healthcare in those rural minorities. So you have a new paper out that you and some of your Indiana University colleagues have published. Before we dive into this research specifically, I'm guessing we'd all agree with a general analysis that people fighting difficult medical issues really of any sort have a different set of challenges and considerations than appear in perhaps a more urban area. Generally the case, you'd say? Yes, exactly. Um, and I think we see a lot of those sort of disparities exist because of just the rural infrastructure that exists. So we could think of that as primary care providers. Uh, I'm sure, especially our, our Bloomington sort of residents and colleagues and community members can probably appreciate this. Uh, there's a lack of specialty care, or if there's a sort of rural hub, um, that whole sort of rural region is sort of going back to that hub. Uh, so it could take a while um, to get care, or one would have to travel to, to a large distance to get care. So not only is there a lack of sort of primary care infrastructure, but there's a lack of specialty care infrastructure, which is essential for the management of chronic diseases. There's also a lack of sort of social service infrastructure as well, lack of public options, lack of uh, affordable housing opportunities, lack of financial options that really make sort of rural areas very in the sense of engaging in healthcare. So really just the travel part of that is the least of it almost, it sounds like. Because all of your friends at the IU School of Public Health and the School of Education will hopefully listen. Let's go ahead and mention your co-authors from Indiana right here. So tell us who's on this paper with you. Yes, of course, I would love to do that. So. Um, I'm the lead author and the corresponding author for this paper, but I was so fortunate enough to, to work with very awesome IU colleagues. Uh, so the first is Eva Borheis, who uh, at the time was a education undergraduate student. So um, she's, awesome. she's amazing and awesome. I also worked with Jessica Lester, Dr. Jessica Lester, who's in the School of Education, Dr. Harold D. Green Jr., who's with the School of Public Health, Dr. Debbie Rabinick, who is also with the School of Public Health, Dr. Brian Dodge, who is with the School of Public Health, and Dr. Randolph D. Kubak, who is now at Purdue University. So a wide range of people with a wide range of expertise. The research that you and your colleagues are working on here that we're talking about has to do with the HIV service providers. Throw a little light, if you will, on that term, service providers. What are we talking about here? Yeah, that's a really good question. So service providers are sort of like social workers. So the term can be synonymous sometimes, especially with HIV sort of research. We use service providers and social workers sometimes interchangeably. Um, sometimes social workers are those who have a social work degree and social work certification. Service providers may not have a social work degree or social work certification, uh, but sometimes they're used interchangeably depending on the agency that you're in. Um, as well as if 
all your service providers are social workers and are certified as such, then uh, some people will use that term interchangeably. You've talked with people in this field or the fields. Uh, tell us what you're hoping to uncover in, in these interviews and tell us uh, what the interviewees are sharing with you. Most of the research is in these huge metropolitan cities, Chicago, New York, San Francisco, Miami, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and yet we know, just as we discussed, Miami and Chicago and New York, they have a very different healthcare infrastructure and just geographic system compared to, to rural areas or non-urban areas. So it's important to really look at sort of those contextual factors and what contextual factors can help and which ones can hinder people accessing care in the service uh, system. Um, the second thing within that though, which is why I did this research, was because a lot of the research that we do have about HIV service providers focuses a lot on how their occupational stress impacts their job satisfaction. There's a lot of quantitative research, a lot of survey research, which is important. That's very essential to do. The problem with that, though, is, is that because we're looking to be at how do occupational stress, what's that association with job satisfaction or job burnout, we only get a very minute sort of picture of HIV service. Uh, so this sort of qualitative study was a way to really qualitatively identify and examine HIV service providers and their working experiences, and really to use these results to better inform HIV service provider care, organizations, policies, and um, other sort of healthcare system. Sometimes work like this, I know, gives you that person, gives you that experience that can really stick with you. And to do the kind of research you're doing here, I know there are long conversations and some pretty intensive analyses of those conversations after the fact. So do any of those anecdotes really stick with you here, come to mind about uh, what you're learning? Yeah, yeah. So we interviewed uh, 15 HIV service providers in the rural region of a Midwestern state. Um, and we found four themes. And the first theme we found was that service providers were tired of constantly educating and working to reduce stigma. And when we think about HIV, we think about HIV stigma, but we also think of stigma of populations that are affected by HIV. So LGBTQ stigma, drug stigma, and even also social work stigma, um, such as Social workers are babysitters, or social workers are martyrs, uh, and really service providers combating that stigma. And I, I have this beautiful quote that I would like to, to talk about and an anecdote of that, which is uh, participant six mentioned that they go to community organizations, community health fairs, they also do speaking at organizations. And they said, we get pushback, we bring harm reduction kits condoms or talk about sex. We're having a problem that people think we're promoting the gay lifestyle or drug usage. I'm not promoting anything. I'm just trying to keep people safe. And I think this is a beautiful quote and a sentiment, which is your job is to keep people safe. And what how do you navigate that when your sort of clients and the other organizations other coalition members, um, and also the community itself doesn't agree with you. Thinks that your job is not promoting health and well-being. And you have to deal with that. You have to, you have to navigate that. And we see that this, this stigma really exists 
across all levels that exists at the community level, exists at organizations when they're working with organizations. It works also in their own personal social networks as well. So uh, I think one one sort of anecdote I think about is you work all day, right? You work eight to five, and, and we know service providers and social workers work eight to five, but you're working, you come home, you dealt with stigma all day, and now you are facing stigma with your family. Your family saying, I don't know why you've got to work with this population. I don't know why you got to do HIV. Um, but you know, HIV is transmitted through these ways. So they're educating and, and constantly educating and constantly reducing stigma in these communities. And that can be sort of hard, right? That can be challenging to do when you're doing that day in and day out uh, work from a working situation as well as from a home situation. And of course, because of that, they really face and use emotional-based coping mechanisms for that. So think of that as, you know, why am I doing the work that I'm doing? Um, how is my work impacting the community and impacting clients of HIV? And one participant, uh, because a, a lot of our participants were married, they had children, um, a lot of the times their sort of children and, and family members and friends participated in events. Uh, and one of, one of the participants uh, said, I'm really glad that my kids are exposed to aid service organization events, and they're surprised by stigma. He said stuff like, don't say that, that's mean. One Sunday in church, I asked my kids, what do you want to pray for today? My son wanted people to stop being mean to people with HIV. Hmm. And what a beautiful sort of sentiment that kid has, right, to say we don't need to be mean to people with HIV. Um, and also what a wonderful sort of experience, I think, for that parent who is a service provider in the sense that they're making a difference. So of course they're making a difference for their clients with HIV, uh, providing more access to services that, that their clients need, um, and of course educating the community, but they're also making real impact with their own personal social network. Um, and I, I think that's sort of an important sort of thing about the service providers is that they're facing stigma um, and they should not be alone in that if there is a community initiative and community members need to also be a part of that. We understand then the timeline of, of I suppose, the ubiquity of the disease in, in itself, a, a, a pandemic in its own day. What's the timeline of stigma? We're a couple of generations in now, and I think that quote is kind of hinting at that, at least on a personal level. There's one young person who sees this whole thing differently. So I guess a, a twofold question, how long does that last in general? Part of that I know is education and awareness, but also is the stigma, and this is well beyond the scope of this particular paper I appreciate, but is the stigma because of how the disease is transmitted or because of generations now of complete stigmatization or something else or combination? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that we are seeing more maybe education, maybe more stigma reduction initiatives. So there is the U equals U campaign, which is untransmittable equals undetectable. So people with HIV who take HIV medicine daily will have an undetectable status, meaning that if they do a, a, an HIV test, the HIV test will come up as undetectable. They can't detect HIV, and therefore they cannot transmit HIV. So hence, undetectable equals untransmittable, which is a great sort of, of course, scientific advancement and, and, and a way to reduce stigma. The, the problem is, is, is that 
being told in rural areas. It's not uncommon to go to these huge metropolitan cities and seeing that on buses, seeing that on the subway system, seeing that on the train system, seeing that on posters. In not urban areas or rural areas, rarely do you see that sort of thing. Um, and if there is, there might be a huge pushback. And then because of that, that might be taken down. Um, so, and we know also through multiple studies that HIV stigma and a lack of HIV knowledge exists more prevalently in non-urban areas compared to urban areas. So I think we're seeing this push to really do a lot more HIV stigma reduction. The thing with that though is, is that because HIV stigma is a community issue, the community and the context of the community need to be involved in sort of those interventions. And it's really easy to sort of bring that home, I suppose, when you think about the the massive outbreak uh, in Austin, Indiana, southern Indiana, rural community, uh, primarily, as I understand it, from needle sharing and whatnot. But I'm guessing education is a is a tough sell there and before and after as well. Exactly. And, and I, I'm so glad you mentioned that the Scott County outbreak is because with HIV stigma, there's also multiple types of the stigma within there. So we have drug stigma, we have LGBTQ stigma, we have sex stigma, the stigma of like having sex. Um, so there's a lot of different types of stigma that that the community might need to address depending on, on what that community context is. And our HIV service providers are, um, but they don't need to be bearing the, the brunt of that's obviously the big one. You mentioned four themes. Just briefly touch on a couple of the other things that keep recurring in this uh, research. The other themes are, um, although HIV service providers were facing stigma and a lack of education, they were constantly sort of addressing that. And because they were addressing that, they were receiving support from changed family members and friends. So their family members and friends may not have been educated on HIV, had misconceptions about it, negative perceptions about it. So after educating them about it, their family and friends became advocates. They were educating their coworkers. They were attending events. They were um, sort of providing sort of this emotional support for HIV service providers when they were having a rough day. The last theme is this really lack of control over system and clients. One could imagine that it's hard to do your job when you don't have resources to do your job. So, for example, we've sort of maybe faced that with COVID-19, where we were in our offices, we were in our office suites, we were in our cubicles, whatever had you. But we had the technology, we had the resources to do our job in that study, and then all of a sudden we had to do that from home. And I can imagine that was challenging for people, or to say, I can't do this aspect of my job because I don't have that technology, I don't have that, I don't have that software system. HIV service providers had a similar experience to this where it's hard to provide, let's say, affordable housing resources or mental health resources when you don't have affordable housing options or mental health care clinics in your area to refer clients to. So that's this lack of control over a system where, where their clients are having needs and healthcare needs and social needs um, that may not be addressed well because there's just not an infrastructure that exists. So, how do service providers navigate that? Um, and also that they don't have control over that. The other thing within that, with lack of control, is also just a lack of control over clients and clients' behaviors. That if 
you have to really do a lot of change methods for clients and that could take some time and, and you might feel that you're pounding sometimes at that because of that time sort of lack. So for me, wanting them to change or having them advocate. So that can be challenging as well. And I'm guessing like so many things, the COVID pandemic makes none of this easier on these service providers as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I was, I was in, I, I do a lot of community-based work with HIV service providers. So when the pandemic happened, I was talking with them. And um, for a lot of HIV service organizations, they, they work through donations. And with donations, there's usually these events, uh, you know, this one-time event or, or two-time events per year where, you know, there's gala, there's some sort of, you know, walk or run. Um, where people come, they donate, things of that nature, and they couldn't do that during COVID. So, so all this was virtual donations, or you know, how do we do you know our donations? How do we do that virtually? How do we provide services to our clients to make sure clients' needs are being met? About how do we do that virtually too? When clients may not have reliable internet access, which you know is an issue in rural and non-urban areas, or trying to manage sort of physical distancing and social distancing and mask wearing, which is all appropriate, uh, but that may mean that it can see less people in a day. So what does that mean for clients and sort of their healthcare needs? Um, so this was all sort of challenging uh, and service providers sort of are in the middle of it, right? Where the system is trying to figure out what to do. Clients need help and service providers and social workers being in the middle saying, okay, how can I navigate the system? What what do I need to do to make sure that my clients needs are being met? These are people, as you mentioned, from a specific part of the country, a Midwestern state, and that anonymity is important in the research. We understand that. The biggest commonality you allude to here is that they all work in rural settings. Does it seem to you, does it seem to your team, that the stories you're hearing here are being repeated, perhaps in other rural parts of the country? For sure. A lot of the sort of, I think, anecdotal conversations that we hear with HIV service providers across rural areas across the nation are, is very similar to this. Um, and we sort of can see this with, you know, stigma and educating people and having a lack of control over these systems and policies and clients and finding emotionally based coping mechanisms. We also see this across other fields of social work, for example, mental health social work and and child and adolescent social work, where we see that well, where there's stigma, there's a lack of education, there's lack of control over system policies, and social workers and service providers are just finding emotionally based coping mechanisms to deal with all these occupational stressors. So we see that across, I think, a lot of different types of social work fields. This is probably a policy question, I suppose, as much as anything, but what's to be done about these concerns and these complaints that uh, they're telling you about here? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, so I think there's sort of three parts to that. The first part is really investing in stigma reduction and resiliency-based training for service providers and social workers. So that could include social work programs, actually having stigma reduction courses, topics, content, whatever have you, in the curriculum, both at an undergraduate and at a graduate because we know HIV service providers and probably all service providers and social workers are dealing with the stigma associated with their field, whatever field that they are in, um, and they're constantly working to reduce that, providing them tools necessary to do that 
might benefit them. Uh, because of that, though, however, as I said, the stigma reduction should not only fall on social workers and service providers. So the second piece of this is really investing in stigma reduction at a community level, having community level stigma reduction interventions, programs, marketing, ads, things of that nature, um, as well as investing in the social infrastructure of rural areas, having primary care clinics, having mental health care clinics, having social services having affordable housing options, having addiction services being available, things of that nature. So, so social workers and service providers can refer clients. And the third piece, I think, is for policymakers to involve social workers and service providers in the policy decision. Social workers and service providers interact with a wide range of clientele who are facing social circumstances and social conditions that make it hard to navigate and access care. Um, and they're also dealing with multiple policies and multiple systems. So they understand where the red tape is. So having social workers and service providers be involved in the policy decision-making process can better actually address that red tape and better really create policies that really help people survive and not just survive. And to work like this, it's going in the medical journal AIDS Care. What's the big takeaway that you want people to get out of this particular research? Yeah, I think the I think the big takeaway is that BJB service providers face occupational stressors on a daily basis. A lot of it is stigma and lack of knowledge. So really we need to invest in stigma reduction services and we need to invest in social infrastructure because again, it's hard to refer clients to care services and, and other social service places when there's a lack of infrastructure to do so. So stigma reduction and invest in social services. And let's wrap this up with just a tiny bit of optimism. What's one of the positive things that you're taking away from this research? You know, I think everybody should have a friend with a social worker because um, it really provides you with insight into the social service realm and world and as a public health professional and scientist, um, that's a world that I'm sort of familiar with, but I don't know very much about, but there's intersections there. And and I think it would be wonderful for public health and social work disciplines to collaborate more, because uh, I think we could really make some really great impact on the health and well-being of clients, um, as well as the, the health and well-being and function of social systems and health systems that exist. So, I'm obviously all about interdisciplinary collaborations, um, and, and I think that should continue going forward. Dr. Christopher Owens, a professor at Texas A&M and an alumnus of the School of Public Health at Indiana University Bloomington. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And we thank you for joining us as well. For more information, follow us on social media. On Topic with IU is on Facebook and Twitter. And you can subscribe and download this podcast from services like SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Just search On Topic with IU on your favorite podcast provider. From Bloomington, Indiana, for On Topic with IU, I'm Kenny Smith.